This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the province announces new regulations surrounding the public consumption of drugs. Does it go far enough? Solicitor General Mike Farnrick joins us. Plus, political implosion. Are we witnessing the destruction of the province's free enterprise coalition? Who will put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And Tom Hanks becomes the latest celebrity victim of deep fake ads. We look at why stars aren't the only ones at risk. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, Premier David Eby and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth announced where drugs can be consumed in public spaces during BC's decriminalization pilot program. Here is Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Drug use will be prohibited at parks, beaches, and sports fields, as well as within six metres of a bus stop or an entrance to a building. Now, Premier David Eby was also at that press conference and he said that new regulations will bring drug use more closely in line with rules that generally surround tobacco, cannabis and alcohol consumption. Take a listen. It enables police to use this as a tool to redirect people to services and appropriate locations instead of using hard drugs in areas used by families, people going to work or business people. When people use the appropriate government-funded overdose prevention site, it is a chance to connect them to services to get them into care that they need. That was Premier David Eby. I want to let you know that Solicitor General Mike Farnold will be joining us at 4 o'clock to discuss today's announcement. Uh, Guy Filicello, who's a harm reduction and recovery advocate, joined our Jill Bennett earlier today to express his reaction to today's announcement. Take a listen. Is it decriminalization for people who have, you know, proper places to use them, such as a home, or and is it... Um, you know, recriminalizing, you know, people that don't have a place to use these substances. What I think has to happen if these um, amendments go and pass, the government needs to actually address the uh, issues of people smoking these substances that people can have that place to go. So they can be redirected there or they can be redirected detox or wherever. Like I said, my concerns are really a lot to other communities that don't have access to these uh, services as well. Right. And then is the concern then that... That was uh, Guy Filicella uh, speaking to Jill Bennett earlier today. Now, just to confirm, the province is moving to ban consumption of drugs within a six-meter radius of building entrances, six meters of bus stops, and within 50 meters of playgrounds, spray pads, wading pools, and skate parks. Uh, In addition, drug use will be completely banned at parks, beaches, and sports fields. Now, in the past six months, last year or so, several municipalities proposed bylaws to restrict uh, restrict public drug use after uh, drug decriminalization was introduced. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Katie Newstater. She is a Kamloops City Councilor, a community, by the way, that uh, jumped on the issue, and certainly Ms. Newstater did as well, uh, raising the issue of public drug use and the impact it was having on residents uh, in uh, the Kamloops region. Katie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Pleased to be back on with you to discuss this. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, issue. First and foremost, your thoughts on today's announcement by the Premier and the Solicitor General. 
I think any day when you feel heard by the province from the local level is a good day. And I would commend those in leadership who recognize that what was in place was not working in municipalities for those who are closest to the issue and seeing the real-time impacts. And I'm really pleased that it's extended as far as it has and uh, grateful for this movement. Uh, Is it enough? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, locally, our bylaw does go further, so that indicates our position as a whole here in Council in Kamloops. That being said, we recognize that different communities have different factors. Uh, the bandwidth might not be there for enforcement, and so sometimes you take what you can that can be applied on, on the greatest level. I wasn't thrilled the first time the proposed legislation came out. It certainly didn't go far enough. This is much closer to the mark. So what does it, does Kamloops do that, that goes further than what is being proposed in this provincial legislation? I'm curious. We basically said all public lands, extended it, all sidewalks, you know, those places where people will be impacted as opposed to limiting it to doorways and proximity to those kinds of spaces. Again, very pleased to see that they included bus stops and and those doorway limitations. So that's a start. But here in Kamloops, we did want to see it go further than that. But also we have the infrastructure and are developing the programs to be able to deal with it as well. Hmm. Now, the drug decriminalization uh, pilot project project um, began about seven months ago. Uh, it is an ongoing issue and an ongoing debate in, in British Columbia. How do you think uh, it has landed in Kamloops? I'm very curious because every community is going to be different and rural, yeah. urban can be different as well. Not that uh, I would describe Kamloops was completely rural because it is a, a sizable community with lots of amenities and all those types of things. But I'm curious, how has the issue of just a pilot project of drug, drug decriminalization landed in your community? I think that there was a lot of recognition that this could be a tool that is part of the solution to this crisis that we continue to face. And no one wants to see people dying from overdose and we need new approaches. So I think that it was received in that spirit in general. But again, lacking the guardrails for success leads to unintentional consequences. So, I mean, anecdotally, which is all we have at the moment really substantiated, we have seen negative impacts. From that time till now, of course, it's a complex issue, lots of factors. But if we were to look at implementation in January, and then now here we are in the beginning of October, the overdoses have only increased, the social impacts have only increased, what we're seeing as far as use has only increased. So while decriminalization is a concept, to destigmatize those who use drugs could be an effective one without the proper guardrails. It, it does not have the outcomes that we had hoped for. So I, I think there's some hope that with change and open minds, it could be the success that it was meant to be. So what needs to change? I mean, if this has changed now and you're generally very happy with it. Uh, we've had conversations on this show where, you know, my thinking is that, look, if you people do not see uh, greater enforcement a greater mm-hmm. opportunity for um, treatment centers, that drug decriminalization as a pilot project on its own is actually yeah. set up for failure. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong in my assessment. I'd love to hear yours because I think you almost need those other two in the, and, and viewing government actually making an effort to provide those two, uh, number yeah. one, on treatment centers and enforcement as well. Then people will come along and say, okay, we'll, we'll come along with the drug decriminalization. We're willing to go there. But until then, you're almost setting it up, the pilot project, up for failure. Yeah, I'm aligned with your assessment. I think that's right on the money. And, you know, it raises the really pertinent question of how are we measuring success in this area? You know, we were promised a dashboard. I was in UBCM 
sat across from the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, and she said, the dashboard is live. It's good to go. A few days later, that was significantly walked back. It's now a snapshot. And when you look at that snapshot that's really buried seven layers into the Internet, Mm -hmm. um, and you dig into the information, it's more presentational. It's not what are we actually seeing as data and measurable outcomes. We can look and say, is this being successful? Is it having the intended consequences? Or are there gaps that we need to fill in? So that's another big piece of of success here. But like you said, we also need purpose-built complex care. We need safe consumption sites that include inhalation, a sobering and detox center, recovery options. These are things that need to be put in place in order for this experiment to be successful. And I think we're working backwards right now. But at, at least we're naming the problem and looking for the solutions that we need. And hopefully advocacy at the local level for these things to make it successful will continue to be heard by the province like they heard us when we started creating these bylaws. Katie, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We are speaking to Katie Newstater. She's a Kamloops City Councillor, uh, getting her thoughts on uh, the province announcing today they're introducing legislation to uh, to ban the consumption of drugs within a six-meter radius of building entrances, six meters of bus stops, and within 15 meters of playgrounds, spray pads, wading pools, and skate parks. And drugs, of course, will be completely banned at parks, beaches, and sports fields. This, of course, after the uh, uh, drug decriminalization pilot project was announced in our province seven months ago. Um, Many of Folks were starting to use drugs in these public spaces. Several municipalities ended up proposing bylaws to restrict drug use in those public spaces. Now the province is catching up with province-wide legislation. Our next guest uh, did propose similar uh, bylaw restrictions in his community. It did not pass in council, but I wanted to talk to Ahmed Yusuf. Uh, He's a Maple Ridge City Councillor because of what he was seeing in his community as well. Uh, Ahmed, thank you for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me, and thank you for reaching out. First and foremost, your thoughts on the proposed legislation uh, that the government introduced today. Uh, I'm glad that the pressure that was applied by numerous municipalities and the people that took to the streets and demonstrated and, and were saying enough is enough has finally resonated enough with Victoria, with the provincial government, that they've gone and, and sought the uh, amendment to the decriminalization from the federal government, and now we have it in place. And credit is due uh, you know, to the previous mayor and council of Maple Ridge where that bylaw was actually passed. My motion that was proposed this last May mm-hmm. was to enact the ban. Uh, so I, I just wanted to clarify that, mm-hmm. and, and you know, credit to Maple Ridge for being an absolute leader in safety of our community and and having that vision well in advance to have uh, a bylaw as such on the books. However, it was not enacted. And that was my motion last May. Um, What are you seeing in your community right now on the streets uh, in regards to uh, drug decriminalization? Um, Are are things getting worse? Are they getting better? How uh, how would you assess uh, what's happening? Since the implementation of the experimental uh, decriminalization policy, we've seen quite a significant uptick in in open drug use. Uh, unfortunately, when you say decriminalization, uh, those that are uh, involved enough would know that it means simple possession. Uh, the general public, unfortunately, and many of, of the population that would be using the drugs, took it as it's decriminalized. Mm-hmm. It's a free-for-all. 
you know, until today, even with the amendment that is coming through, being intoxicated, being under the influence is still illegal. So uh, the use itself is uh, banned now that we have in, in parks, but even being high or being on those drugs is still criminal, uh, according to our, our standing laws. So there's that disconnect. And so having seen that uptake in, in consumption, in open drug use, and of course in the the behaviors that accompany that and the social disorder that comes as a result of of the drug use being so prevalent being so open the vandalism we recently had one of our maple ridge long-standing businesses very well known in the community very community-minded great business all around in our in the heart of our downtown core they were severely vandalized uh their windows were broken and there was some sort of an incendiary device thrown in there it was you know something above and beyond what we would see in in maple ridge uh final question to you what do you want to see next in regards to you know helping people who are dealing with this issue uh, many have said more treatment centers and enforcement on top of this pilot project, but in regards to whether it's local or national, what would you like to see next in regards to moving forward, dealing with the challenges of drug and mental health addiction? Certainly a focus on treatment, on getting people past the stage of being addicted. Uh, Currently, what I see is a policy of starting to get people assistance, which is great, and I stand for that wholeheartedly. However, we need to also have accountability that comes with that assistance in the form of a plan and solidified or or agreed to steps between the individual and the organization that they're working with to get them on the path to sobriety, to get them on the path to recovery. That's what I would like to see. Uh, Ahmed, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Take care. Well, let's talk a little bit of wine, well, BC wine specifically. Now, I think the images uh, over this past summer in regards to the wildfires are seared into the minds of many British Columbians, no more than the residents who actually live in the Okanagan, which, of course, is the, the heart of our wine industry. Uh, they've had some significant challenges. It wasn't the first wildfire season, but, you know, you add um, you know, uh, wildfires, you add uh, flooding in many cases in some communities. The impact is profound, and I want to talk a little bit about all of this, the impact it's having on the wine industry. Joining, now is, uh, joining me now is Miles Proden, President and CEO of the Wine Growers of British Columbia. Miles, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Lots to talk about here. Give me a snapshot of where the industry is at today, particularly after uh, this incredibly uh, profound wildfire season. Well, I think you painted a pretty uh, a pretty good picture uh, just to sort of uh, lead into it. Um, it has not been uh, an easy go by any stretch, <laughs> and not just for wine growers, by the way. I mean, obviously, uh, wildfires impact uh, pretty significantly uh, anyone who's who's involved either directly or indirectly. So, you know, we we we, we acknowledge and, and and are appreciative of again all the support everyone gets uh, in those instances. However. Our industry is interesting. You know, we've been seeing the effects of climate change for a number of years uh, mm-hmm. leading up to uh, to the fire. So we've been sort of tracking it and, and taking a hard look. And you're right, between forest fires, uh, atmospheric rivers, uh, heat domes, uh, winter uh, freezes, um, it's all taking a toll on our, on our industry. And really, it's taking a toll on the vineyards. And 
for the last uh, couple of several years, four or five years, we've seen a steady decline in uh, in just how much wine we're able to, how many grapes we're able to take off the, off, off the field. And then when you factor into it uh, the fires that we had just recently, um, it just exponentially increases uh, the, the challenges that grape growers and, and winemakers have here in the province. So is, is beyond, you'd say, a wildfire uh, impacting a specific wine, are actually damaging property or burning crops, what impact does wildfire have? Is it is it the smoke on on their grapes? I'm curious as to the kind of impacts that you see uh, on the industry. Yeah, well, that's a, it's a good question, and no doubt it does. But I think the most immediate impact um, that it it has on the industry, and, and and I think you mentioned it again in the introduction when the image is seared into the minds of of people. It's all, not just in BC, but all around the country who consider coming to wine country for a visit. Mm-hmm. So whether your winery is have any kind of proximity to fires or smoke, um, people take a look at what's going on in the news, the coverage, and, and they see and realize that uh, um, it maybe it's not a good idea to come and visit. And not not again. What we what we encountered this year was an actual travel ban. Um, the government imposed provincial government imposed a travel ban, asking people specifically not only not to come but to get out if you were here to free up. Uh, accommodation space. So th- that is probably the most direct effect it has because when the fire is gone uh, and the people are not here, uh, the wineries are still waiting for people to show up to buy their wine. And so that is the most immediate effect. Now you want to talk about smoke impact and the rest of it, mm-hmm. that does have an influence on it, um, but probably nowhere near as it does is just in, in people staying away and not visiting their favorite BC winery. So uh, can you just walk me through the numbers here? Uh, I was reading that there's a 54% reduction in crops this year and the longer-term damage to 45% of total planted acreage. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, wow. there's two things. There's two things. Yeah, I know when you start adding it up, you're getting pretty close to zero or 100%. We, we understand that. Mm-hmm. It, and it is, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's looking as though it's as dire as, as we projected. So we know that we're seeing crop damage because of uh, because of climate change, and there's also you know it's not just the direct effects of the climate per se, but it's what that climate change allows in terms of disease uh, spreading, um, you know, opportunistic um, viruses that uh, you know we're not normally used to having to deal with because of the the change in weather. So we've been seeing that decline in the amount of grapes we're able to harvest. And that's really about uh, about a crop replant. We need to we need to replace those thick vines, uh, and those vines maybe that weren't as hardy um, or should as hardy as they should be. And so we need to do that. Uh, and that's a multi-year thing. That doesn't that takes years to sort of replace. You don't do that all at once. But that needs to have happen. We've got some good government support for that. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, what we've got is Christmas last year. We had minus thirty. Uh, for a couple of days and uh, well a couple of days of minus 30 is you know you you can get by as as an individual by staying inside that is catastrophic to grapes and what was interesting on that instance is it reached all the way down to a suyus not those cold temperatures are not not totally abnormal necessarily here in the cologne area but further south where where it extended it 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 never goes down that bad that that far and that's where a lot of the red grapes are grown and ripen, and that's what's been mostly damaged. And that's what we are seeing as the crop comes in this harvest. Mm-hmm. We projected about a 54% decrease, and the final numbers are yet to be in, but um, we're, uh, I'm afraid we're not off on that estimation. So, But we'll know probably in December exactly where we're at. But every indication is 
we're, we're in the 50% range down from where we should be. So the question is, how do we help as British Columbians, as uh, those of us in Metro Vancouver and Southern Vancouver Island? What would you like us as consumers to do? Well, what a, what a great question. I'm happy to answer <laughs> that question, Doug. It's a good question. And it's true. I mean, we're very fortunate here in B.C. in our industry because we, we enjoy great support from, uh, from B.C. consumers. You know, it's interesting. I, I deal with people uh, in wide regions all around uh, North America for sure, but primarily down in uh, the Pacific Northwest, you know, Washington State and Oregon. But probably more importantly for us is Ontario. And they uh, are envious of uh, how supportive uh, our, our customers are for BC wine. And so we don't take, you know, take that for granted. We know that BC wine is not the cheapest product that's available. Um, you know, the consumers have choice and uh, uh, they can go to a lot of different places and get a lot of different wine. And so we never take that for granted. But we're fortunate that people uh, realize the product and they, 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 they buy BC. And so our ask is that they continue to do that, whether it's uh, when you're looking, picking up a bottle of wine for uh, for yourself or, or maybe it's a special occasion or a gift. Uh, consider uh, making it uh, BC. Mm-hmm. If you're in a restaurant, um, many restaurants, again, fortunate that they support our industry. They have buy the glass program. So if you don't are unsure about getting a whole bottle, uh, if you have something by the glass, make sure it's BC. And then come and visit. Um, we're, we are open. We continue to be open. And um, um, we would enjoy you to come year-round. And so uh, uh, the fires have, uh, have abated, and uh, you can still come and visit. And if you have a favorite winery, um, you know, there's lots of offers for them to ship you a case of wine. In many instances, uh, they're covering the shipping costs. So there's lots of ways that uh, consumers can continue to support uh, 100% BC wine here in the province. Miles, always uh, love chatting with you. Thank you for your time today, and best of luck to you. And I think uh, I hope the message does get out. We we have a great wine industry that we have built over many decades now, and it's just world class. And uh, uh, we want it to see it uh, thrive, survive, and most importantly, continue to grow as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Here, here, and uh, cheers. Let's revisit our top story today. Premier David Eby and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth announced where drugs can be consumed in public spaces during BC's uh, drug decriminalization pilot project. Um, The province is moving to ban consumption of drugs within a six-meter radius of building entrances, uh, within six meters of bus stops, 15 meters uh, within playgrounds and wading pools and spray pads and skate parks. And in addition, drug use will be completely banned at parks, beaches, and sports fields. Uh, Premier David Eby uh, talked to the press about the issue today. Take a listen. It enables police to use this as a tool to redirect people to services and appropriate locations instead of using hard drugs in areas used by families, people going to work, or business people. When people use the appropriate government-funded overdose prevention site, it is a chance to connect them to services to get them into care that they need. That was Premier David Eby earlier today. He was also joined by our next guest, uh, Mike Farnworth, as BC's Minister of Public Safety, and he joins us now. Minister, thank you for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Is this going to be enough in your mind in regards to protecting the public uh, in regards to this particular pilot project? Uh, I believe it is. Um, We did quite a bit of consultation with um, health officials, with health providers, uh, with police, with local community, with people lived experience, and with uh, UBCM, um, First Nations Health Authority, for example. And, and it, I think this does respond to the concerns that, that we've certainly heard from people and, and, and local governments 
around the ability uh, to move people to away from uh, parks and playgrounds and areas where, 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 where families are and mm-hmm. kids are. Uh, I spoke to a Kamloops councillor and, and a Maple Ridge councillor the, during the 3 o'clock hour uh, on this announcement. Generally, they're very supportive of what the government's doing. Uh, other communities, as you know, uh, over the last seven months during this uh, pilot project, moved quickly to, to introduce local bylaws to deal with some of the challenges that this particular piece of legislation is addressing. Do you think you could have gone further, though, in regards to, you know, in this case, you have um, 15 minutes, meters of a playground and think in some cases, six meters of a bus stop. So I think in Kamloops, they just ban all uses uh, on sidewalks and public spaces. Could you have gone further here? I think what we've tried to do is to strike a balance, recognizing that um, uh, the decrim- decriminalization, for example, was never about the ability to use uh, drugs whenever and wherever you wanted. Um, it is a public health issue. Uh, people with an addiction have a public health issue, and that's what it's about. And so, and the other thing that we want to ensure is to try and have as much as possible a comprehensive uh, not a patchwork approach, but a province-wide approach of, of, of rules in place. Um, and the reason why we came up with it the way we did was because it's very similar to the rules that we have around smoking, uh, alcohol, and cannabis consumption. And so it's easy for local officials to be able to, everyone to understand, to be able to put in place um, it's, it does what police asked for, which is the ability to move people on uh, from, uh, you know, from playgrounds where, where families and kids are. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably almost impossible to answer. I'm going to ask you anyway. Is, do you think the pilot project has been a success so far? I think the, the pilot project was put in place recognizing, and it's a three-year pilot project, recognizing that, you know what, 12,000 people in this province have died. Um, and from the toxic drug uh, crisis. And it's something that's happened right across this country and right across North America. And in, in, in putting in place how we deal with it, you know, the traditional methods, police were telling us we're not working, health officials were, not, were telling us we're not working, that we needed to do other measures. Uh, and that's why this pilot project was, was, was put in place. And it was done after consultation with all of those groups, with, um, you know, health providers, with people with lived experience. But at the same time, we also recognize, you know what, we have to have, when we're doing a pilot, we have to be able to respond to concerns as they arise. And we, you know, we've heard from uh, people, we've heard from local communities, and this bill is, uh, is, is a balance between, um, you know, there'll be those who say it goes too far and those who say it doesn't go far enough. And this is a balance between recognizing that people with a health issue, this addiction, need to be able to get the, the services they need. At the same time, you know, the public has, has the right, families have the right to be able to go to a park mm-hmm. and, and not have to worry about their kids being exposed to public drug use. Now, what do you say, uh, there was a press conference yesterday from Van Du, the Vancouver Network of Drug Users, uh, and they were saying what is actually needed is um, more inhalation sites, uh, safe inhalation sites, uh, and more safe consumption sites to actually deal with this. You did bylaws like this, or sorry, uh, the uh, provincial legislation like this isn't going to help deal with this issue. What do you say to that? Well, um, I understand where they're coming from, and and that's why you know we've got in the budget over a billion dollars in terms of mental health and addiction funding. Uh, that's why we're we're working with local governments, with health authorities, to ensure that we've got overdose prevention sites, that we have those areas, those safe places where people who have an addiction can go and use safely and not, you know, and, and, and 
there's people there to ensure that that they you know they don't die, um, and so that work continues. We're committed to doing that. Uh, what we're also recognized though is is that that public and the public supports those measures, but the public also has a right to expect that when they take their kids to a park, for example, or someone's a senior's going to a bus stop, or uh, you know uh, kids going to a bus stop, and people are going to work at bus stops, that they're not exposed and they don't have to deal with with open drug use. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's what this is about. It's that balance. My final question to you, uh, with this pilot project, and I understand why we're doing it, you've articulated it very well in regards to uh, uh, this emergency that we're dealing with that has been ongoing for a very long time. But do you think this program itself, the drug decriminalization, is destined for failure amongst the public because they don't see the other two pillars. Um, I was talking about those two other pillars, which is enforcement and secondly, treatment centers, that if we don't focus on those other two elements, that drug decriminalization as a pilot project is destined for failure. That's why it's important that we're doing the legislation that we are today. It shows the public that we are listening uh, to their concerns. And at the same time, it also has, is, is crucial for government to continue to uh, invest in those services, the overdose prevention sites, the inhalation sites, that, that the treatment facilities and the treatment is there for people who need to access it. It isn't one thing, it is a full spectrum that needs to be in place, and that's what we're committed to doing. And if we do that, then I think the, 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 this program, this pilot project, will in fact succeed. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Now, in the last few months, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the Hollywood uh, writer's strike and actor's strike. Uh, and what it's done over the last five months uh, is basically stopped all production. Many people have said you're not going to see a lot of new production uh, well into next year. Um, and what has happened is a lot of people have been re-watching older programs. In fact, a survey um, done uh, by YouGov found that two-thirds of Americans, this isn't Canadian, but two-thirds of Americans had watched the same season of a TV show at least twice, and nearly half of respondents said they did so at least three times. We're joined now by our Jerry Mira Judson, because I mentioned this to you, uh, to, to all of you, is that because uh, we were talking earlier today about Comfort TV. Yes. And I love that name, by the way. Yeah, it's it's perfect. It's just like a warm hug. And there's a whole sort of field of study surrounding, of course. I mean, every time human beings do something new, we have to study it. So uh, it's comfort viewing comfort shows. I, too, since I was a child, I've been a serial rewatcher of, of media. So I was really interested in this. And I talked to Dr. Alexandra Gold. She's a licensed psychologist and clinical fellow in psychology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And I asked her why we rewatch all of our comfort shows. I think a lot of it goes back to predictability. You know, we're just coming out of the pandemic, which was a time of uncertainty for people. And watching something that you know that you like, that you know the outcome, brings comfort to people. It does something that we call self-soothing, which is something that calms feelings of stress or anxiety. I think also it's not taxing in a cognitive way to watch something that you already know what's going to happen, you know, at the end of a long work day. People might not want to have to learn a whole new show, all the characters, the plot, et cetera. And then I'd lastly say that I do think that for many people, there is something about watching a show 
that's familiar that might connect back to a positive time in their life. There's that nostalgia piece. Is there, do you think, a generational aspect to this? Or do you think or do you know if maybe Gen Xers or Echo Boomers are also into the comfort shows? Or is this more of a newer generation phenomenon? You know, I don't think there's specific research on this that I'm aware of. But I do think a lot of people enjoy the comfort show watching. I think that streaming has made watching shows in a binge watching format more accessible to people where it doesn't have to just be on TV for them to watch it or for them to like buy a DVD set. It's something that they can subscribe and get all their favorite shows. Would you say like there are benefits to doing this, to doing this self-soothing sometimes? And would you say that there are detriments to doing this self-soothing sometimes? Absolutely. So let's start with, with the benefits. So there's actually some research that shows that watching some of these shows or you really connect with the show in some way, it actually can help with loneliness. Sometimes people form relationships of sorts, not real relationships, but connections with the characters where they either relate to them or empathize with them in some way. Uh, I think that the negative can be if it's something that you're watching to either procrastinate to to avoid Mm -hmm. something or to manage ongoing depression or low mood. People might just have the show on, but it's not like an intentional watching of it. It's something that's in the background and it's, it's not something they actually are necessarily that interested in. So asking yourself, why am I watching this? Is this an intentional activity or am I doing it to avoid some negative feelings I'm experiencing? If it feels like watching a show is checking off those boxes I was mentioning about feeling depressed or feeling anxious, you know, that could be a, a time for someone to notice those feelings and the sh- watching the show as being a way of treating that and maybe talking to to a therapist or just opening up to friends or, or family about it and trying to schedule if it's like, you know, watching a show to avoid social interaction or in replacement of that, maybe try to schedule real life activities outside of, you know, watching a show at home to, to get out there and, and live outside of just that. On a personal note, what is your comfort show or comfort shows if you have any? Yes. Um, well, one of mine, I would say, is Gilmore Girls. Have you seen this show? Oh, my God. No, but I'm super aware of it. I keep meaning to watch it. So Gilmore Girls for you, hey? Yes, definitely. It's funny because I'm from Massachusetts. So I grew up in New England and there's something really New England about the show. So it's getting back to that relatability piece, I think there's that aspect where, you know, connecting with the environment and getting to know the characters, you feel really invested in them because you can relate to them in some way. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I was speaking to Chris Galas mm-hmm. and uh, during uh, the Daily Debrief, and he was saying for him and his wife, it's Home and Garden TV. For sure. That's what's on a lot of the time for my mom as well. It's just HDTV I shows. Know. You can just sink an afternoon. I would trash that network over <laughs> and over again. And then we went then through a rental, yeah, rental like eight, nine years ago. Oh. And I started watching a little bit. And now that is... That's what's comfort on. comfort TV. I oh, it's good. And you know what the funny part is? You can PVR a show, mm-hmm. watch the first segment, and then just fast forward to the end with the reveal, Exa- right? You are literally but, the same person as my mom. Yeah, and yet you still <laughs> sit through it. You know what's going to oh, happen. Oh, some this old house. Yeah. Oh, it's good. I could sink days of my life into this no, old house. And it's just like, there's what was the one that I saw where celebrities who, of course, can afford to buy whatever they want, mm. but they 
get homes built or rent. No, they they had their assistants or oh, whoever they love, yes. and then they rental the homes. Oh, and, yeah. Like, why do I need to you know waste an hour of my life because Gwyneth Paltrow? I gotta is, know what her is house helping looks to like. Rental her assistants' home or something like. Oh that. yeah, got to. It's just so sad. You can't, <laughs> I can't respect myself when I watch it, but it's like, but it's comforting. Ooh, I gotta, I'm not going anywhere. No, I gotta see the reveal. It makes me feel good. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. And what what, what about movies? Is there comfort movies? Um, I I floated this on Twitter and some people did offer comfort movies. I saw someone likes to watch Godzilla movies as comfort movies. Yeah. Um, someone likes to watch Scott Pilgrim versus the world as a comfort film. Mine okay. or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. What are your comfort movies? Star Wars. The whole Star trilogy. Wars. I can always go back to it. Yeah, all of it. I can do that. I love Mission Impossible. I think it was espionage. Yeah. So even if I've seen <laughs> the movies a thousand times, I've just, it's on all. You, when watch. I watch it. you know, you of course get it on streaming, but if it happens to be on a It's something a special about catching network. the movie that you exactly. like. Yes. Exactly. Well, when uh, celebrities uh, post on their Instagram feeds or on their Twitter feeds, usually it's uh, uh, selling a movie. But uh, in this case, Tom Hanks warned fans a couple of days ago about a fake advertisement using an artificial intelligence generated version of his likeness without his uh, permission. The two-time Oscar winner uh, shared an image of the ad, uh, which um, Mr. Hanks says falsely depicts him with what appears to be an aged down version of, of Hanks. Uh, which was used or made using AI to Instagram over the weekend. Um, And I guess the the video itself uh, promotes some uh, dental plan, which with the AI version of him. And he wanted to let everybody know that it's not him and he does not endorse the product. Uh, Is this the first time AI has been used to um, mimic a celebrity? Absolutely not. But it probably won't be the first time some companies have tried to use uh, the images of celebrities. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, celebrities being duped by AI deepfakes is Andy Brewer, tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Hello, Andy. Hi, Jazz. Hi. What do you make of this? Yeah, so celebrities, they have um, they, they have two fronts that they're trying to solve with AI because, one, they have a strike with um, in Hollywood right now and with the studios about them using the, their AI you know, software to be able to recreate them so they don't actually have to go into studio. The studios can actually just use their likeness from other works and basically build up a, a digital version of themselves. But that's one issue. And then the other issue is is like cyber criminals using their likeness to sell a, a variety of different things. And that's what we're seeing right now. Not only Tom Hanks, but Mr. Beast, which has, I think, the most popular YouTuber in the world. Mm-hmm. He came out with a similar message showing another AI thing. And this is like low-hanging fruit software jazz that people are using. Basically, they just take a video of somebody and they're altering their lips with this AI software. And because they have so much audio of them on the internet, they can then train their AI to make them sound like them. So this is low-hanging fruit AI open source that anybody can use, including cyber criminals. But you have to imagine what would the Hollywood studios do if they were making a blockbuster movie and they have similar kind of AI tools to recreate artists. So I I really think actors are are fighting two fronts right here. And this is um, a make or break moment for them moving forward with their their likeness and what what creative works look like in the future. Should everyday people be worried uh, with Uh, their likeness uh, as well or their voice? I'm just starting to think about, you know, if you can mimic someone's voice, could you mimic an average person's voice and maybe call up their banker to get some vital information or whatever it may be? 
Absolutely. That's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. Because there's one thing about celebrities, you can only have so much sympathy for celebrities, you know, when they get uh, deep fake videos used of them. But what happens when like the, the AI training for your voice is getting really, really good. Like we have to remember, this is the worst AI will ever be. But the more and more that uh, the, the AI can get trained on someone's voice, so the more data they have of somebody, they can replicate that voice. So we all get these spam calls all the time. Like the CRA is pretty much the only people that call me these days. But what happens when those spam callers are using your mom's voice or your brother's voice asking for help and I need you to send me some money and it sounds exactly like them? How are you going to discern? And I think that's what really is you know, for the average person out there, we have to be worried about AI is when cyber criminals take, you know, our loved ones and try to replicate them to scam us. And that's going to be a very, very dangerous thing if it ever happens. Are the laws there to protect us uh, yet? Or do you think we're, we're going to be playing catch up on this? No, there is no laws. And I think that's really the problem. There's so many of these legal and ethical implications that need to be sorted out. For example, if you're an actor, if you're a struggling actor, you know, there's two ways. You could look at AI and say, no, this is, you know, going to destroy my career. But what if you're a struggling actor, you have a second job, say you maybe you work in the hospitality industry and a production company comes to you and say, hey, we want to make you an offer. We just need you to come into the studio one day on a green screen. And then we need you to come into our recording studio and just say a bunch of stuff. And then we're going to use your likeness for this client of ours. And we're going to sell this product in multiple countries around the world. We're going to translate. It's going to sound like you're speaking Portuguese and French and English. Um, and here's a check. And this is what we want. We want you to sign your AI life away. You know, that that offers are out there right now and actors have to, you know, choose whether they're going to embrace AI or they're going to try to fight it. And you know, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of proposition, especially if you're struggling and trying to make it in that industry. Yeah. You, you know, if you think about that, I mean, it, it, it is absolutely scary in regards to where, where we're headed with this technology, considering even uh, uh, movie, th- movie companies have already said, if we take a picture of you once, we can use you as an extra uh, in perpetuity uh, for centuries if they needed to. So it is, it is actually scary. And the fact that if it go, gets in the hands of criminals or something of that sort, it's even uh, even even more damning. So it, it's something we're going to have to definitely keep an eye on. Andy, thank you for your time. Well, thanks, Jazz. I know what the BC Conservatives are most thankful for. It's uh, today's poll from Leger. Uh, it was released today. It was a poll um, where they surveyed 1,001 British Columbians between September 15th and September 18th. And what's interesting here is voting intentions. We're still a year away from the next provincial election, but the voting intentions were quite interesting. Uh, the NDP scored highest at 42% support, followed by the provincial BC Conservative Party, 25%. 19% for BC United, formerly known as the BC Liberals, and 10% for the Green Party. Now, what does this actually mean in the grand scheme of things? Generally, we've had coalition parties, and those coalition parties, in the case of the Free Enterprise, has always been federal liberals and federal conservatives got together, and you would have the BC United Party, or in the past, BC Liberals. But today, you got both of them running, and the BC Conservatives are ahead when it comes to voting intentions. Well, to make uh, sense of it all for us is Global BC's Keith Baldry, who's joining us now to talk a little bit about today's poll. Keith, thank you for joining us. Hello, Jazz. Hello. Now, you, I'm going to say full disclosure, you texted me this morning. I think it was like 7 a.m. We had talked about a potential poll coming out. You texted me. What do you make of all this? Well, I mean, it's, you're right when we're, we're a year away from the election, unless we're not a year away. I mean, Evie can call, pull the plug anytime he wants, including next spring. And he must be tempted when he sees 
um, a split like this. So historically in BC, you talk about the Free Enterprise Coalition. The Free Enterprise Coalition, whether it was called the Old Social Credit Party or the BC Liberal Party, uh, governed this province for 52 of 70 years until the NDP had an interruption in the early 70s and again in the 90s and now uh, for the last seven years or so. And BC history shows whenever that side of the, le- of the ledger splits to any significant degree, the NDP can win an election because its vote is so resilient and steady and rock hard with less than 40% of the vote. And we've seen that happen in a number of elections in B.C., and we seem to be headed towards that now, although B.C. United will argue vociferously that is not the case. They say it's still early days in their view of changing their name to something where people can actually figure out what they are. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, the, things do not look good for B.C. United right now. People do not know who the party is. The B.C. Conservative brand is known to conservatives. It's not like the BC Conservatives are going to be picking up votes from the NDP or the old, you know, people who consider themselves liberals. They are traditional conservative parties, conservative voters. Voters in the past usually voted for the BC Liberal Party, knowing that's the party that was a free coalition. So the names have changed, the identities have changed. There's a lot of voter confusion out there, and unless BC United can sort of uh, calm the waters and get rid of that confusion. And they insist they can. I had a conversation with United Leader Kevin Falcon today, mm-hmm. who insists there's time enough to change uh, people's perceptions of his party and get their heads around the fact that they are you know, the natural alternative to the NDP. He said, we're in a marathon, not a sprint. I said, I beg to differ. I don't think you're in a marathon. I think you might be in a half mile or a mile race, uh, and you know you're in the bell lap because there's not a lot of time before the next election. And we're talking about rebranding a name, and anybody in marketing can tell you that's not done overnight. It takes time and it takes money. So we could be at a historical crossroads. He saw. I think the reason is I think the United Party saw your tweet promoting this segment, talking about the potential disintegration of the Free Enterprise Coalition. And they certainly don't want talk like that because I think they genuinely feel that's not going to happen. They think they can keep the coalition together. Mm-hmm. And they think the B.C. Conservatives under John Rustad will marginalize themselves and and their support will dissipate and go back to United. And like in the, the situation in 2013 when the Conservatives were pulling well in the polls, I would argue we're in a fundamentally different situation than we were in 2013. And I think, you know, the the outlook is hazy at best for the alternatives to the NDP. But, I mean, do you think there's a point there in regards to Mr. Rastad's performance uh, on day one when the legislature opened? He goes, starts with Soji, which is highly offensive to many people, and certainly the Premier pushed back uh, on, on that as well. You had this odd performance yesterday by his colleague, Bruce Banman, who had to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, revoke what he had said initially in his questioning and question period. Do you think some of these antics, I get, I get playing to your base, but as more and more we see more and more of this, uh, and people see more and more of their performance and perhaps pushing some of these uh, cultural issues, uh, hot button issues that people may you know move away from them and say, go, look, this is this is a circus act. Uh, I'm going to rethink what I'm who I said I was going to support. Do you think there'd be a bit of that? And that's what Mr. Falcon has said. Look, just give these guys enough time. They'll shoot themselves in the foot. Oh, there's definitely going to be a chance of that, but I think Rustad's totally cognizant of that. I don't think he really cares. <laughs> I think they are not necessarily looking to form government. I think they want to replace the BC United as the alternative to the NDP, and I think they probably regard this as, as a long, uh, long-term goal, not something that's going to happen in a year. And I think they generally want to get rid of BC United and make them the, the dominant choice uh, to uh, replace the NDP. And it means, it may mean, 
you know, one thing, you know, they take very controversial positions the, last, the first week of the, of, of the legislature. But, you know, if you believe the old saw, there's no such thing as bad publicity in certain situations. John Rustad dominated the session the first three days and, and his colleague Bannerman because people were responding to him. He was driving the bus at the legislature. It wasn't Kevin Falcon. It wasn't David Eby, although David Eby got a standing ovation from the opposition for denouncing Rustad. So this has added a, a whatever you want to call it, a new element, a bit of spice, some controversy, mm-hmm. into a chamber that's usually been you know one or two or three parties squaring off along traditional lines, and now the conservatives come along. And they've upset the apple cart, and they've taken positions that many people find extreme, and they will continue to do so. I have no doubt about that. But they'll continue, um, I think, as an alternative to the NDP, uh, attract that conservative vote that Pierre Poliev is attracting, mm-hmm. who can take those controversial positions. And he said he's attracting it nationally. He's probably having some rub off in some provinces, Manitoba notwithstanding. And I think Rustad's gambling on that. Uh, I only look back uh, in history there. You've been there a while in Victoria covering it. And I, you know, I'm starting to think back to 1991 when it was uh, uh, working here, actually, and, and, uh, or in following sort of Rita Johnson at that time. And I think in many decades before, probably in the early 70s, things were a little different then as well. Like, is, are, there, are there similarities between, let's say, 91 and today uh, when Socreds uh, disintegrated? And I guess even in the early 70s when the NDP came in uh, under Dave Baird in 72, do you see some similarities there? Oh, yeah, uh, although the circumstances are different. So no, what you've got now is you've got two opposition parties, you know, squabbling or fighting over the same vote. In 1991, or the late 1980s and the early 90s, you had the Social Credit Party was disintegrating from within government. It was absolutely falling apart, and it fell apart in the 91 campaign, and the Social Credit Party disappeared. That was the Social Credit, uh, that was the Free Enterprise Coalition, you know, under W.A.C. Bennett for 20 years and his son Bill Bennett for 11 years, and then Bill Van Zandt for five years. But they let that get away because social conservatism uh, took over the party. Now you've got a social conservative party in the legislature, which is the B.C. Conservatives. They're, they're pushing social conservative buttons, which is toxic for many people. But I don't think they particularly care about that. But it can have the same uh, impact internally on driving a wedge uh, amongst caucus members. I was struck, and we talked about this, I think, yesterday, the first question period, Rustad denounces the SOGI 123 program. He's denounced by David Eby. And two BC United MLAs, Eleanor Sturko and Karen Kirkpatrick from West Van, led the charge to stand up and cheer and join in a standing ovation. In fact, begin a standing ovation for the op, the government premier, which is almost unheard of, prompting and or if not forcing the rest of the United crowd caucus to stand up. But there were three caucus members who remained in their chairs, mm-hmm. uh, who refused to participate, which was uh, Ben Stewart, Tom Shapika from the Kootenays, and Ellis Ross. And I'm not sure. I talked to Ben Stewart afterwards. He says he does have problems with the SOGI program, and so do some of his constituents. And he felt uncomfortable cheering for a premier. Now, feeling uncomfortable cheering for a premier is a legitimate view. Now, if that's an indication that there's a split of opinion in the caucus on a sensitive issue like SOGI, it raises the question, are there other splits potentially on other very toxic or divisive or explosive issues? And it was interesting today, David Eby was asked about this. And he kind of took the high road, saying he doesn't want to get into exploiting this. He doesn't take uh, pleasure in the fact that people point out his party benefits from a split like this. He doesn't want to see that type of toxic material in the legislature. And is really, as he said in the House, concerned that the conservatives are bringing this sort of toxic 
American-style politicking into the legislature to drive wedges between people rather than, you know, sort of not working together, but not working uh, with each other's hands around each other's throat. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's legislative reporter. We were talking about a new Leger poll, uh, which uh, was conducted between September 15th and 18th uh, with the 1,001 British Columbians participating. And when it comes to voting intentions, the NDP sit at top at 42%, but number two, BC Conservatives at 25% and BC United at 19%, the BC Greens at 10%. Uh, Keith, one of the other things in this poll just showed that 52% of British Columbians think that the that things in this province are on the wrong track and mm-hmm. when you look at it there's a lot before the government we got home prices that haven't uh, that aren't heading down they're heading up instead we got a huge affordability challenges you've got issues around crime and public safety due criminalization we we're just talking to the solicitor general at four o'clock on this issue you've got issues of uh, british Columbians having to go to bellingham for cancer care uh so the 52 percent doesn't surprise me and what surprises me is why when it comes to voting intentions mr eby is still sitting uh with the number that he's at it, 42%. And 47% approval. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things. I think the pandemic, and I've been saying this right from day one, has fundamentally altered a lot of people's views of government, that many problems are seen to be beyond solving on just by switching political parties, which is why I don't see, see a lot of people you know, wanting to switch all the time. Um, and for example, this is, this is not an outlier poll. This is about the fifth poll in a row that shows the same gap yet continues to show the number one issue for British Columbians is housing. Number two is affordability. Number three is interest rates and inflation. Then, you know, not this poll, but other polls have asked how do you rate the government's handling. The NDP government gets an abysmal showing on all those issues, mm-hmm. like 80% a negative view of, of their handling. But yet, that doesn't translate into changing voting intentions. And that tells me there's, A, a different view of government right now, but also that they're not – they look at the alternatives – and they're either not satisfied or they're confused. And I think it speaks more to confusion right now with the name BC United, um, which, again, people don't know what it is. They haven't made the link between the, that it was the old BC Liberal Party, and they don't want to go there. Liberal, the United people are saying we're you know, not going to use the word liberals anymore because it makes people remind them of, of Justin Trudeau. And that's what, that could even be worse if we were the BC Liberals. I'm not sure that's the case. So nevertheless, that prevents them from going there and, and tying that link to people. Hey, we're the guys who governed this province for years. Um, vote for us. They're not saying that. They're just basically saying, hey, we're, the, we're a new party. We're the alternative to the NDP. And when you're up against the word conservative, which is a known quantity and value, mm-hmm. it's tougher to make that case, which is, I think, reflected in the polls and explains why the NDP can get such bad marks when it comes to managing key issues, but it doesn't translate to people voting for the other guy. It's very common to, for for uh, politicos and staffers to to make the you know comment that hey look uh, twenty thirteen the polls didn't matter and the polls don't matter right now and we're going to be just fine. What do you say to that argument? In regards to the analogy of where you compare the present to twenty thirteen. Yeah, so 2013, for sure, the polls were dead wrong. Um, but people have to realize, I mean, if you're a political journalist, you do look at polls because, and you also know the pollsters, and they changed the, they changed the methodology for polling pretty well universally um, when a series of polls in both the U.S., Canada, and, and British Columbia failed. But if you look since 2013, the pollsters, by and large, have been spot on in terms of tracking public opinion. 2017, the pollsters uh, said it was a dead heat. In BC, sure enough, it was a dead heat. 
2020, walkaway uh, NDP win. It was a walkaway NDP win, predicting projecting a Trudeau minority government the last two elections, uh, almost to the exact number of popular vote in, on some of the national polling. So I think it's foolhardy uh, and, and foolish for political operatives to dismiss polling just because it doesn't um, say you're doing a good job as, as not indicative of what's going out there in public opinion. And it would be really, I think, damaging for political parties to ignore that, say, well, it doesn't match what we want to see a pollster say, so therefore we're going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. You, you can be sure BC United at some point is going to be doing their own polling, and they're going to probably change uh, strategy accordingly, depending on what they see in their research. A final question to you. Uh, one person has joined from the BC United Caucus, has joined the BC Conservatives. That's Bruce Banman, uh, Abbotsford South representative and former mayor of Abbotsford. If another member were to join uh, BC Conservatives from the BC United Caucus, what does that mean for Mr. Falcon as leader? Well, that would be very bad. <laughs> um, it would create a momentum that would instantly lead to, well, is anyone else going to join? Uh, and that would linger, I think, for months over Kevin Falcon's head. Now, having said that, you know, I think it's very hard. You've been a member of a caucus. It's hard for someone to leave a caucus, particularly those who have been around for a while. So I really discount the odds of a BC United member who's been around a long time of leaving the caucus to join another caucus. Sitting as independent is one thing. Joining another caucus is something else. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. It's certainly being talked about in ways that we've never heard such talk for some time. But I think the odds don't favor that happening. I think, although I do detect a bit of, I wouldn't call it panic, but I do detect there's a a, a sort of unbalance right now in the BC United Caucus leadership and party where they don't really understand what's going on here. Why is this happening when we're doing our best as opposition at a time when we still can't get our brand across to people. And now they find this guy named John Rustad suddenly pulls the rug out from under them on some very controversial issues, yet steals all the attention in the first week of the legislature. That's not a good start for them. It's only the first week, many more weeks to go, that's for Mm -hmm. sure, in this session. Thank you so much, Keith. All right. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.